ladies and gentlemen, uh, my name is Gregory Ball. It's great to see you again. Welcome back to the Good Trouble Podcast. Um, and here we have conversations with the people who are the disruptors, the people who are starting the fires around the the city in the mo- best possible way. And today, my guest is an Emmy award winning. Um, Emmy nominated. Emmy, Emmy nominated. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I gave you the award. See, in my heart, you should have won. Um, <laughs> Emmy, uh, Emmy nominated, I'll take it. I'll take it. Emmy nominated yeah. composer and producer. Um, this is a brother I've known for a very, very long time, and and I've watched his journey go from just not I won't say, from starting as, as as an artist and producing as a songwriter. Then I've seen him go into composition for film, and we're going to talk about all those wonderful things um, today. We have the the pleasure of talking with Malik Williams. Welcome to the podcast, Malik. Thank you, thank you, Greg. I appreciate you having me. Man, I'm happy that you're here because. When I think of people who are, who are, who are kind of doing the work when it comes to the world of the arts, um, you're one of those people that jumps to mind. And the latest endeavor that you've been working on is a secret society of Black creatives. Can you tell me, tell tell folks a little bit about that? Yeah. So the the, the backstory on the secret society of Black creatives is uh, myself and the uh, three other board members, Vladimir Minuti, Evelyn Brito, and Narissa Williams, we were pretty much on like everyone's diversity committee. So like the Mass Film Office, the Mass Production Coalition, Grammy, you know, our Grammy chapter in New York, um, you know, me being involved with that as a black person, trying to bring those resources into Boston, into this region, Boston, New England, um, and then audio engineering society as well. So like being on the education committees, diversity committees, you know, it's just, just being black, you know, I'm the black person that they have access to. So relationship wise, and from a business standpoint, it's cool, you know, networking wise, okay, you're on these, you know, committees and panels with folks, when it comes down to the real work being done, nothing was really being done. And for me, just getting disgruntled and saying, you know, especially when COVID hit, everybody had time to talk about you know, diversity and what they want to do with their companies. And so I realized I'm on these panels <laughs> or on these Zoom calls with all these different agencies or, or, you know, companies that could hire me, right? And I'm above the line. So if they're really, if they really wanted to, you know, to solve the diversity problem, all you got to do is hire someone, right? And then if you don't hire someone, you realize what's the challenges. So it's probably more than likely education experience and those kind of things. So let's just make it happen. So I talked to a lot of these companies and at the end of the day, it's just a lot of talk. And I think if you ask anyone in this diversity space, any any person of color, they probably have the same experience. And I think some people want to try to create some type of change and some people just don't. They're checking off boxes or put people in place, you know, just to say they did. So we created the Secret Society of Black Creatives not to create any, any adverse relationships with anyone here from from a state level but pretty much to say hey you know something you guys clearly don't know what you're doing frankly right this is mm-hmm. I, I shoot from the hip man you know this right i and yes. I, I speak how i think respectfully but since you don't know what you're doing we're going to go and handle this thing if y'all want to come with us just come with us you can come and hang we'll do things we'll go to our people we know you know we know the concerns, right? Especially from a from a social psychological level as well. It gets kind of deep, you know, the reasons why, our whys behind, you know, our challenges. So we'll just go ahead and do that. And then we'll be able to partner and collaborate with all of these different organizations 
around um, Massachusetts and especially the city of Boston where we're all concentrated, you know, Mattapan, Dorchester, Roxbury, where I grew up. So let's just go and do it there. And there were some challenges about, you know, the housing wise, and then those pretty much got shot down, especially with me. I'm like, listen, I've been on these Zooms over 2020, 2021 into 2022, no progress, you know, and then one year we've been doing what we've been doing. Um, and so it is what it is. And I think people kind of see that. And I think more of us need to, to do that. So the Secret Society of Black Creators is the first organization that's focused on film, TV, media, music, um, education, and entrepreneurship at the end of the day, and jobs. At the end of the day, it's all about jobs, right? So mm -hmm. that's what the state is trying to work on and try to make happen. Um, and so we're in position for the first time in my lifetime in, in the history of this state that any organization you know, has been formed to, to kind of like be in this lane that we're in. So it's, it's pretty interesting, it's exciting, it's frustrating at the same time. But things are moving along, definitely accelerating. We've seen, but in the Massachusetts, and correct me if I'm wrong, we've seen um, an increase in terms of productions that are coming in from out of town and movies and TV shows and all those kinds of things going on. And, it's not, and, and at the core, it feels like the work that you're doing is really trying to get, um, you know, black and brown folks into the, um, the pipeline of those jobs, because that's an industry within itself that I think sometimes people don't think of. Yeah, and that's the whole thing, right? So, you know, I try to stay optimistic about a lot of different things. So, mm -hmm. you know, Black Panther, Whitney Houston, just to name a couple of big black films, quote unquote, black films, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the productions uh, staff and the people leadership behind these projects don't look like us, right? And so the Jedi mind trick in a lot of cases is you know, it's, it's one thing is, is the state in the economy of the state, right? The creative economy and all these things, mm. they have tax credits and, and um, you know, all the tax incentives of why big production companies come here, which people may or may not be aware of. But so they come here with their big productions, you know, I believe it's over $50,000 a certain amount of tax breaks that they get, right? And so the incentive is to hire locally as well, right? So hiring locally just means hiring locally, period. What I will say the Mass Film Office and Lisa Strout was trying to do in particular was to make sure that that diversity piece was there. There's a percentage of us, you know, in the know, it's a percentage of us being hired. I, I give Lisa a lot of credit in regards to that. And the Film Office itself, I think, is it's in an interesting position as a state organization. But they were very proactive in, you know, kind of reaching out. And I kind of raised my hand, you know, I'm a music guy, right? But I'm over in, in the film side as a producer as well. And I'm on a, but I'm community and black first, right? So being aware of a lot of the challenges, I said, you know, something I definitely know people that would would kind of excel in this industry. And I was literally calling my family members, street workers, people working with challenged youth, you know. And the reason, another reason why we created the Secret Society is they would reach out to us and kind of separately with emails. Hey, we're looking for PAs, which is you know production assistants and people below the line. You know, um, the jobs above the line really don't exist, really, you know, in regards to coming in. But there's a lot of great jobs, you know, to be able to come in. So we started looking at people with transferable skills to be able to come in. I personally was calling, again, people that I know in the streets, working with with their, you know, first their family members that they need to get out of trouble and need to get jobs. And then, you know, on from there. But what I was doing was like, you know, I'd e if you were a producer, I'd email, hey, Greg, meet so-and-so. And then 
literally be texting this kid and say like, hey, you see Greg's response? Make sure if Greg's a producer, make sure you respond. So it's a lot of babysitting and a lot of work. I don't mind, I got a lot of bandwidth, so I don't mind doing that, but it's not a good use of my time and I'm definitely not getting paid for that, right? So from an economic standpoint, we had to kind of pull back because at first it's kind of exciting, like, okay, yeah, we can actually get people in with jobs. We were very successful with getting people in with jobs, but it's very fragmented, right? So, and it's not, you know, this, it's, again, economically, it, it's not, a, you know, a sound or wise way to work. But, you know, that being said, we said, okay, well, we're not, and I told, you know, Lisa, I was like, you know, the commissioner, I was like, I'm not a headhunter. It's not what I do, you know? So if y'all ain't gonna throw me no bones, which they can't from a state level, and if all these other organizations talking about diversity aren't throwing me any bones, then we can't do that. So collectively, you know, our secret society, you know, board, we ended up kind of talking and because we were already in talks of film forming this organization. So we decided, yeah, that's going to be a key component. You know, education is going to be that key component, getting people, you know, experienced enough, um, you know, to go into that workspace. But the reality is, even from, you know, like a production level in the state, there's a lot of people that would like to hire but also there's a lot of people trying to like gobble us up, trying to control that list of black folks, right? Mm -hmm. Black and brown folks that have, don't have the intentions outside of this, their monetary means of their gain. They don't have the intentions of building community and really creating that. So it's kind of, it's, it's a tricky situation where if we don't control what goes on, the equity still isn't there, right? Because all of a sudden we're just a whole bunch of little worker ants out there, mm -hmm. right? So that's the challenge there where we say you know only we know what we need in our community so in an own, the equity word or equity is kind of just dirty word that people throw around if you don't win the bid if you're not controlling that process right and if we're not building for people to actually you know win and gain on a monetary level then the equity piece just isn't isn't there right and for me showing up to all these studios whether it be you know anywhere in marina bay and, and this you know good people definitely a lot of good people that i met in those circles but as an entrepreneur, I leave and like I'm the black person at the table, right? And so I leave and there's not even any sweat equity. I can't even come back and say, hey, you remember that thing I did for you before? Nobody's really, you know, thinking about thinking of it that way. It's like, I need this right now. They satisfy whatever it is that they satisfy. And I get it because that's their business model. It's just not mine and it's not ours, right? So that's again with Secret Society, it enables us to really kind of control a space um to kind of figure out you know who is what is at at what experience levels and trying to figure out not just their movies but movies that we're doing as well to try to figure out how to climb the ladder with with, with that content as well you know it's interesting as i listen to you i also think that people don't realize um the world of entertainment and the world of the arts and you know so many other jobs there's transferable skills you know, like if you are a carpenter, you can build sets, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. get paid just as good as if you are on a work site and it'll probably be better conditions, you know, in Absolutely. some cases. So, I mean, I think that, I think that the, the opportunities within the arts um, are not necessarily um, exposed to, to folks in, in the community as, as well. And I think that, you know, I think we're uniquely positioned in Boston to kind of have a growth and kind of start to to really build up some folks that can go into it. And then you said, you were talking about PAs, you know, when you're first starting off as a PA, you don't really need to know anything about film. You just need to need to know how to pick stuff up and put it down over in another place. That's really <laughs> it. So, but 
starting as a PA, you can grow and you can learn while you're on set and you can step into the next job and you can step and you know, the entertainment world is really about the relationships. And so when you're talking about secret, secret society, I think that the key part of it is just creating that another spot where people can start to build those relationships. Was that something that you were thinking of um, as you were creating it? Absolutely, because I think being a PA is a noble job, right? Coming oh, absolutely, in, I've done it myself. Yeah, we've all done it. You know, I've done it. Um, so, but going in and understanding what the um, opportunities are, I think, and it just kind of across the board, right? Because transferable skills, you could be doing hair and makeup, you know, you could do hair and makeup, you know, for a film, you know, or an advertising spot or that kind of thing. You could, you know, um, if you're a seamstress in the cleaners, you can actually work in wardrobe. If you're a stylist, which we have a lot of stylists, you know, that don't know that they can actually get in, you know, some of the challenges would be, you know, the unions, right? But we've actually, you know, partnered with IATSE on different events that we're doing. So there's a pathway getting in there as well, getting on over hire lists. So in 2022, when we have an event called the Connect, which is diversity in film, and I know personally people, you know, we couldn't kind of broadcast a lot of things just because of contracts and everything, but a lot of people got on these films in 2022 into 2023. Um, we just did another Connect um, diversity in film event in April. Um, and we, you know, we doubled our attendance and also lots of people excited, lots of people getting jobs. So our thing is, and this is my big thing as well, awareness, you know, in the music, I'm a music guy, right? So, you know, my background, you, as you probably know, like as a musician playing in bands, I was, you know, production manager for Jordan Knight from New Kids on the Block on his world tours. So that gave me a different type of experience. Mm-hmm. I came home and you know, from that, and I was like, all right, I'm a creative guy. Like, you know, this is cool because I'm, I'm, you know, I appreciate being out there on the road, you know, and even going on the road, my deal with Jordan was like, I need immunity. I need to be wherever I need to be. And that's it, you know? Um, and so we had that agreement. <clears throat> so I was able to be in every green room I needed to and every cocktail party I needed to. That was great. But the creative side of me as a songwriter, you know, artist, producer, got me back into more, um, you know, songwriting. And then from there, working with film and TV, I started out doing like soap operas. And this, this is on the music side, things that we're not aware of community wise, as far as creatives, but to be able to, if you're you know, a musician, or if you actually have a collective, a garage band where you can write songs, you can actually write songs to spec for soap opera, things you'd never, like, I know I never thought I'd be doing that, all my children, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of shows. Um, getting that phone call when they're looking for certain styles of music. And that kind of took me into, you know, MTV, VH1, like Cribs, Pimp My Ride, Jersey Shore, Kardashians, Black Ink Crew, Love and Hip Hop, and a whole bunch of other TV shows that I worked on as well. But I honestly, that even took me out of the mentality of just being like an artist or, you know, pitching for records, you know, because records obviously was a part of what I was doing too. But, you know, making those records and having another financial outlet that you can create with the the music or the music licensing behind it right that's what i kind of got into and i was like oh shoot i can write whatever i feel like writing i don't even have to care what anybody thinks because that's a part of coming up and you're making music and Mm -hmm. you know how how dope are you how cool are you you know how relevant are you but film and tv i could write something from the 50s like i've done for progressive insurance and you know different things like that where my knowledge of music and my knowledge of of tools, the tools that we use, like for an 80s hip hop song or a 90s hip hop song, what drum machines did they use back then? Like I came up through all that stuff, you know, from analog to digital, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, and trying to figure out, 
you know, how do I recreate something, right, to work with that film project? So that's a big part of it. But if you don't have that talent, so whenever I do talks with, with in schools and things like that, I normally try to talk about, you know, digital audio and production. Anyone can learn that on YouTube, right? You can go out and try to figure out how to make a beat. I'm concerned with the kids making beats that don't know they're composers, right? So the business behind that, you're actually a composer. The beat is a street term, right? We're kind of used to that, that term. But at the end of the day, if you're not talented enough to make a beat, if you're not a rapper or a singer, and if you're not talented enough as an engineer, because even as an engineer, you have to have talent. You got to have ears. It uses all kinds of different levels of talent that you need as an engineer. But if not, and if you're somebody that says, I just love music because a lot of people love it, right? Well, you can be a manager, you can be an agent, you can be a publisher, you know, there's all kinds of admin jobs that you can do, right? In, in regards to publishing and music licensing. So, you know, you can be a guitar tech. I remember when I was touring and I'd show up and see the same guitar tech in Mexico that I saw in some other place. I'm like, yo, like, what's up? So you get to know these folks. I'm like, that's actually a job. Like, I know somebody's got to tune a guitar. I play guitars. Okay, that's cool. But you mean that you can actually, that's your thing? And you can show up and eat like everybody else? And, you know what I mean? But you can tune pianos. You know, how many pianos are there in this, in this country, right? You know, you can fix, you know, all kinds of instruments and things like that, that you don't need to have this God's gift, creative God's gift. You could have other gifts that you use, you know, your God's gifts that you use differently, but still be in the same industry. So that's why, again, I talk about this this way because of if you took 10 kids, right, from up from where we come from, mm -hmm. right? And then, you know, maybe you do have, you know, that producer making beats and, you know, the singer and, and the rapper and the engineer, what do you do with the rest of those six kids, right? And as you know, at any gig that you've been to, which I know you've been to a lot, the people that start fights on stage, it ain't the artist. I mean, more often generally than not, not the a, artist. It's their homeboy that came it's, that doesn't have the a entourage, job. right? He's, a, he, so, he's it's his boy that came and that has no job. He's no not, job. He's not. He's not do. in charge of merch. He does. He's not shooting <laughs> content. He's not doing anything but just coming and taking up a spot. Right. And people generally, if you have a purpose, you'll take pride in that purpose, right? And then that will be you'll your protect. You'll protect the situation too. You're going to protect the situation and that's what we need to kind of create we need to create have the education behind this creative you know scene that we're in and unfortunately i mean you think about it like all the graphic designers that are making t-shirts and posters and all these different things and this is what secret society has kind of evolved into because of me being a music person i'm like yo what about me what about me like i do music y'all can't do films without music what's going on here you know and then even you know audio post engineering that's a lot of what i might do you know dialogue recording which is called you know adr uh, so these different aspects of what we do creatively a lot of people just don't understand that whoa i could be really good at that because what happens is all these films going back to to massachusetts all these films happening here there's certain studios in boston where they end up at right and there's a lot of us that could be doing this type of work and and it's interesting because I've even asked certain producers like, hey, what's going on? Where are you guys doing this and that at? And some people have said, we don't know. All of a sudden, I look on social media and I know where they did it at, right? And the people that own that, those studios don't look like me, right? Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, there's a part of that going on, the good old boys club and things like that. And then there's other parts of people not knowing that they have these resources here. And they're not thinking about who's black or white or whatever. Um, and so that's the aspect I try to keep in the forefront as well, because 
building community and as artists, artists don't care. And again, it gets into this racial lane of diversity, but mm-hmm. artists, and I try to keep this in the forefront of, of my conversations where artists don't care who's black or white, fat or skinny, straight or gay, all these things, right? It's society that makes us, because of white supremacy and because of the systematic injustices that we deal with with any corporate environment, right? All of a sudden, we got to lean on that. But at the end of the day, if you get a bunch of artists in the room, nobody cares at all. So when I talk out loud, even though I'm black and I might be black power all day long, you know, I'm more I'm more so advocating for people in our community, right? If you're a white kid and you're my neighbor, when we was kids, we probably grew up as as buddies, and then we became family, and then we had kids, and our kids are cousins, and nobody really thinks about the fact that, you know whoa, this person's black or this person's white, right? It's really just the greater society that puts that pressure on us. But I'm really big on that. And that's why I speak out too, because people look at my relationships and you'll see more diversity than a lot of people. And you know, I think the last six, seven, eight years, the politics and protests, and black people dying in the street and all this stuff, like a lot of people found out that I was black. Like they knew I was bald head, but then they found out that I was black. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I, because <laughs> I, because I'm the only bald head black dude in the room, right? You said they, they knew you were bald headed when they found out you were. Yeah, black. yeah, like you know, this yeah. people are like Malik, you smile too much. I'm like, I really shoot. I'm trying to be as mean as possible, but no, like I go into a room and honestly, in just again any industry, you go in any conference, anywhere in the medical field, the business field, we're gonna be outnumbered generally, right? In a lot of these, in music, whether it be Grammy performing rights organizations, ASCAP, BMI, any of these places that you typically go in when they talk about business, I'm definitely, you know, out, outnumbered, right? Especially here in Massachusetts. Massachusetts is definitely outnumbered, you know, production coalition or whatever it is. But I never leaned on the fact that I was Black as being different, like a less than. I looked on the fact that I was just different. You know, I mean, I never was less than. I was just different, I should say, right? Different meaning like, I want you to remember me because I got no hair. You know what I'm saying? I want. I don't mind if you say, "Oh no, the ball head dude over there," right? Mm-hmm. That's not going to insult anybody at all, right? Even if you said, "Okay, the black ball head dude over there," that's fine. Whatever. If you're comfortable saying black, you know, you said the African American, you'd be suspect, right? <laughs> <laughs> Talk about African American. We're not going to go there. But you know what I mean. So, but if I had red hair, it would be the same thing, right? If mm-hmm. I had, you know, green hair, like playing the Celtics, uh, you know, it'd be the same thing. Where I look at that and say, like, no, I'm just distinctively different. And that's it. But I'm educated, right? And I call myself cool because I just get along with everyone, right? And I'm generally I'm I'm concerned about people and human beings. So I love learning about wherever whoever you are, wherever you are, right? And that's the aspect that I also like to bring, you know, to the forefront of my conversations and relationships. Because at the end of the day, we're supposed to be different. We're all supposed to be coming from where we come from. You and I are black, but we come from two different places. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a lot that we have in common, but I guarantee there's so much that we don't have in common that we, you know, we could definitely appreciate learning from each other, right? And that's that's everyone. So with younger people, you know, we have our stigmas based off of society. So I try to have straight conversations, not ignorant conversations, but straight conversation about reality, because I know I have my experience and I speak the way I do because of my experience. So nobody can say, oh no, Malik, you're just making this up. No, this is my experience. Right. So if you want to keep it real with me, you're going to at least have to hear out my experience and let's talk about some solutions because the place where I'm at right now, I'm always 
I know what I need to do. I know what I need to change for my experience to be different, right? So I'm not getting on a soapbox to complain. I'm actually standing up and say, yeah, you know something, if I feel this way, and I'm an intelligent black person with a lot of different experiences, the people that haven't been able to get out of our communities, right? Because of all different reasons, they're kind of stuck with one experience, right? And I need to be the person, and I've always been that person to kind of go in, how you and I know each other, right? Going in and, yo, what's up? I'm just showing up, right? If I can support somehow, if I can just be somebody clapping in the back of the room, I'm good with that, right? If you moving your gear, guess what? I'm, I'm strong, I can move some gear. I did that on the road. I know how to pack a truck. I've been in bands, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, and I'm like that also as friends, if you call me at three in the morning and you're stuck, bro, call me. You call me BSN at three in the morning, don't call me no more. I'm really pretty straightforward like that. No, that that is that I can say that this is true about you. But what one of the things I would <laughs> I would ask, I would I would ask this. Um, you talked about kind of the different spaces and places you you be you've been in. You know, kind of talk to me where this all started. One, where the creative spark started for you, but then kind of how did that was was that the advocacy piece of what you're doing, which is, I think is, is to the forefront, you know, how did, how did that come to play? Because I, you know, we, we met, I met you as, as a working musician and producer and, you know, you've grown into, and you've always had your hands in, in the other parts of the business. You know what I mean? I've, I've, you know, with the Grammys and all those things, kind of tell me about the path where you, let's start at the beginning, kind of, where did you start? Cause I, you know, I know that, you're, you know, you're from Roxbury, grew up, born and raised, you know what I mean? Right, right in the, right in the heart of the city, but coming from Roxbury, how did you get to the pathway of saying, you know what, the creative arts is a, a where I want to pursue my, um, my professional life. Yeah. I mean, it took me a while. So like my history being born in Roxbury in the early years of Roxbury, but then I moved to Dorchester, Cobham Square, right? And well, so, so that was a great move right there. You moved to the best part of the city. Yeah, I mean, my father, you know, he was one of these guys, like, I believe his name is number one still in the mosque in Grove Hall. Okay. Building that mosque, right, as a Muslim family. But my father was, you know, he was ex-military, you know, street dude running numbers and all kinds of crazy stuff that he did, you know, before, you know, his his experience with, um, with Islam and the Nation of Islam, right? Mm -hmm. So I didn't know anything about that obviously, like just as a kid, you know, I just know my parents taught us to be very respectful, right? We were the first black family in our street on Lynnhurst Street um, for like five years. And they didn't want my father to buy the house. So the, the real estate person found out that he was black and didn't want to sell the house. My father being a street dude, hustler or whatever, he ended up back door and finding the owner and buying the house directly from the owner. And I think back in them days, there was no contracts, right? So you, <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, you could just do whatever you want. So that's how we end up getting there. And then, you know, the other part of my upbringing in regards to, you know, being a respectful black person is showing, teaching, making sure people knew that we were black and that we were a proud black family, but also being respectful at the same time. So, you know, like dealing with racism, you know, getting up in the morning, our windows being broken, that kind of stuff. Everybody knew my father had a gun. He had a big 357 Magnum sticking out his shirt every day right so as kids like i'll tell you a funny story that i don't mind sharing publicly oh, i was about six or seven years old man this, this is i think about this now why am i the way i am right now right so i think of things that i went through the average kid generally wouldn't go through 
So my, you know, my father, people kind of thought my father was a cop or whatever, you know, sometimes just the, the way he carried himself. He was like five, eight, you know, not a, not a big guy at all, but mm -hmm. he was, he was, he was hardcore, right? They did some things that I can't share on, on here because they had to black people back in the day when, you know, the sixties, seventies, you know, how things went down, right. To protect our families. So he came from that, but he was a very respectful person you know, on top of that, but he just didn't play. So like this one kid on my street was throwing chicken and watermelon at me, bro. I was like six, seven years old. Wait, what? Just, just to even be calculated, you gotta think about the level of racism for some little kid my age to be, <laughs> so that means some older person in the house <laughs> Must have gave him. Saw him walk out with this plate of chicken and watermelon. <laughs> Throwing it, I mean, I ran home to my mother. Right, my mother was my mother didn't play. My mother's still don't play to this day. She's eighty six. She don't play. Right. So mm. my mother called my father on the old CB radio. Right. My father calls the police. I remember my mother holding my hand, walking up the street. I'm crying. My father pulls up. So now my chest is out. Right. My father pulls up, and then the police pull up, and then my father told the cops. I'm only calling, he called the family out, right? They're, they're on the stoop. He called, he told the police, I'm only calling you here because if this family bothers mine one more time, I'm killing everybody in the whole house. <laughs> and as a little kid, I'm like, oh, snap. He Whoa. Wasn't talking like that. But that was ingrained in me, right? So imagine how everybody else in the neighborhood felt when we were, and I had nine brothers and sisters, by the way, right? I probably had seven of seven brothers and sisters, eight brothers and sisters at the time. So that was my father, and that's how he got down, right? And really think about it. It's legal, you know? You know what I mean? It's completely legal. And think about how the police looked at him. Mm -hmm. Well, this dude ain't playing around, right? There was other situation where these guys tried to drown my brother over at Wainwright Park over in Dorchester, you know, and the same thing. I remember I was probably like shortly, you know, maybe a year or two after, something like that. My father called his boys man they they lined up these 20 white kids up against the fence with shotguns on the roof of the car and i'm a little kid but i couldn't go to the corner store i couldn't walk down to shaman station without people throwing stuff at us and everything else we fought like you know as i got older it was just like crazy right and then i also had some of my white friends from you know lenhurst street that if i saw them on my bike and i think about this now especially the last 10 years of a lot of things going on and i think of my experiences as a kid growing up just as a kid growing up and, you know, and a lot of kids share these experiences where, you know, I'm riding my bike at, you know, 10 years old or something. I remember being down Ashmont and I'm like waving to my friends, hey, hi, and they're not waving back because they're with all their white friends. Mm. But on, my, on the street, the, you know, our street became a little darker, right? We had the, you know, Puerto Rican families and other families that, you know, that, that moved in and it became, you know, a lot more black families. So we, again, as a community, you know, black people don't have this violent thing about us, right? We're always gonna give people the benefit of the doubt. And at the end of the day, if you're on our side of the block and you happen to be white, well, we're gonna protect you as well. So, and that's what I, end, I realized would happen, would not happen when I went down to their side of the block, right? And it's almost like you pass over Alston Street, if you know Alston Street or Melville or whatever. Um, and so, but that was my experience. So I never, you know, thank God, like my parents didn't teach us to go out and be evil, you know, and like to, be, you know, to be vengeful and revengeful, you know. So it was all about being respected as a black person, right? You know, we wore suits to school, we ironed our clothes and all that stuff and had to come home taken off. And that's all, you know, that's like, you know what I mean? Just to make sure we was, we was clean. We weren't talking ignorant, right? I still, 
wasn't talking that way. We wasn't calling each other in words and a lot of other crazy things, right? So we had to be very cognizant of how we represented ourselves. Now, behind closed doors, we're listening to Eddie Murphy and you know Richard Pryor and all that stuff that we ain't supposed to do as well. So it's not like we didn't grow up to that. And as you know, you know, like Bobby Brown side of the family is is my cousins as well. Growing up in OP and all that kind of stuff is a whole separate experience as well, right? And we had our little gangs and things that we did back in the day, you know, that was just you know, a bunch of us hanging out and, you know, block parties and all that kind of stuff, right? So we had a good balance of both of that. I still say with my life, if I had gone to Dorchester High versus Boston Tech, why I took that exam to get into Boston Tech, I still don't know to this day, besides following a pack of my friends, right? That changed the trajectory of my life. I wasn't really into music music at that time. I was into architectural, you know, drafting and mm -hmm. you know, in everything else. But from going to Boston Tech, I think gave me a global view of Boston, Metro Boston, right? Because we're going to kids, going to school with kids from Brookline. We had a large Chinese population there. <clears throat> I didn't even know, you know, there was a Chinese population there, right? Just growing up in Cobman Square, like I was in love with Bruce Lee. I was into martial arts and all these other things. So I had a fascination with the culture, but never any friendships, right? So that was really, really great for me just as a human being to really say, oh, shoot. And this is what I still try to share with people as well. So even though I have this kind of adverse, you know, background in regards to growing up on street level, you know, the, to, when you look at people in our community and as we broaden that scope of village in our people in our, in our village, like the lessons that we learn, you know, like something simple like this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of silly for the most part. So I'll say silly things like this, growing up doing martial arts, right? Hardcore. Chinese people, as we think when we don't have relationships, because and this is, you know, stereotypically of somebody being smart, right? Smart at math and this kind of stuff. When I went to Boston Tech and some of my friends was cheating off me and I was like, yo, bro, you're supposed to be smart, man. Like you ain't supposed to be so doing wait, it. So, <laughs> so, so, but think about it. Thought, so the kids who by stereotype you were supposed to be cheating off of were cheating off of you. That is hilarious. You know, and it's crazy because again, like these are silly things I like to say out loud because we all think it, right? If I think it, I'm generally gonna say it if I'm telling a story. I'm a storyteller, that's what I do, right? Mm -hmm. But but it's something that I think is very fascinated after the fact, the lesson that I learned, like, wow, why did I think that way about that person, you know? Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, I didn't have an opportunity. You know, I think now with social media and the means that we have to learn about people and cultures and, you know, industries and those kind of things, we have a less of an excuse, you know? Um, yeah. but, I but say that- We have less of an excuse, but the reality is, Malik, we still have the same level of, for lack of a better word, ignorance about one another. Like, and I, and I think that the beautiful part about your story is that it also illustrates the futility of stereotypes. Because like I said, here you are in a situation where the person that you were quote unquote supposed to be cheating off of was cheating off of you. And it just lets you know how at the end of the day, we're all people trying to figure out our way to our way in the world. You know what yeah. I mean? So I, it's very interesting to hear you to hear you tell that it's, story. It's silly because like my, my I have a ton of Chinese, I call just my Chinese family now, right? Mm -hmm. From Boston Tech. You know, like my daughter's name is Alyssa, and I named my daughter Alyssa after one of my friends. It happens to be Chinese, but she was somebody that was a good friend. She named her daughter Alyssa. I, I didn't know any Alyssas. 
you know, again, at the age where people are starting to have kids and they're like, oh, shoot, you have a baby. Wow. Like, and so, but that's, that's like a fun story to me. That's a fun connection, you know, and honorable, like it's honorable for me to feel that way about my friend and, you know, and their child. Well, you uh, were having a genuine connect, but the, the thing about what you were saying about going to tech um, is that you were having it. And for, for people who don't know, tech is now John D. O'Brien yeah. um, of uh, what you call it, uh, School of Math, Mathematics and Science is the full name, I believe. Um, but the beautiful part about that is just like I said, it's the it's this part where you recognize the humanity of each other by being close to each other. And that's one of the things that art does, you know? So uh, you're telling this story, but yeah. where, did, where, did, where do the arts come in into your so life? Because I know, because I know you, like you, you mentioned the, the fact that you're related to, to one of our, our musical icons in the city, Bobby Brown. But so what was it seeing him do his thing or what, what was it no. that kind of, <clears throat> made you part of you know pick up the pick up music when you're in high school you don't hang around with middle school kids right i wasn't trying to hang around with no new edition no new kids and nothing like uh -huh. that you know and it you know invertly like i end up being production manager for jordan later on in life and not bobby i used to hang down in atlanta with bobby and them and everything else but no like so my my introduction to music was at home so my mm -hmm. father played you know piano, organ, guitar. He wasn't like a musician, like as far as like a gigging musician or anything like that. He learned probably in the military, you know, in Korean War and all that stuff. So, you know, came home just kind of playing from learning. I never had music in school. Dorchester High was great. Dorchester High had an amazing music program. I had Glee Club in middle school for like two weeks and that was about it, you know. And I was also a pretty quiet, shy. I was silly, but I was kind of quiet and shy. So, but my brother, that unfortunately, um, well, I unfortunately passed away in 2012. Um, share that with an, an, another time, but two of my brothers passed away. But my older brother that got me into it back when I was probably like 11, 12, 13, and he was in high school with his high school boys, they all came, you know, and, and they had all the instruments in our like den, right? Basement den okay. scattered around. I would sneak in the room and um, play a bass. I'd pick up the bass. I don't know why I gravitated Actually, I do know why I gravitated towards the bass, um, but that's what I would do. I'd go in, sneak around, just play, but that's it. I wasn't in any kind of organized band. And what was it about the bass before you move on? What was it about the bass to <laughs> me? You, you breeze by <laughs> that real quick. What was it about the bass? Well, I, I just realized, that, okay, so I was so, I used to get in so much trouble when I was a kid, right? I would be lucky if I could make it to the porch in the summertime. I was like a punishment grounded mm -hmm. every summer, right? So um or i couldn't get out of my room and in my room i looked in the closet there was a guitar with like four strings on it i never even i wasn't even smart enough to know it was supposed to have six strings on a guitar mm -hmm. but i'd sit in my room and learn i was probably like you know 10 maybe 11 12 13 years old i'd learn every song off the radio with that guitar and that's how i got into music but i wasn't sharing that with with anyone right like we were a musical family i used to sing so i was a singer first most people don't know me as a singer but I was a singer first, but only singing around the house, learning songs. This is like I'm 10, 11, 12 years old, right? Mm -hmm. uh, probably first started my latest memory, my furthest memory is probably four or five years old, singing Al Green and stuff like that. But it wasn't a fun environment, right? If I didn't sing, I was getting my butt whooped because my father would be like sing. So I was traumatized as a kid coming up. I didn't really get into it. Like I used to do many Rippleton and all this crazy stuff, those real high pitched stuff. So I had a huge range and, you know, kind of again, as I got a little bit older with my sisters doing stuff, um, that's how like 
I kind of got into, you know, kind of the singing thing, picking up a bass for the first time as I got older, touching real instruments and everything with my brother's friends. And I gravitated towards bass and also just just as a bass player anyways, the sound, you know, what it represents within a song and all that stuff. So that was my experience kind of coming up. You know, my sister asked me to sing at a, at a Christmas party at Mass General one day, and it was my brother's was playing with another dude in the band, looking for a bass player, handed me a bass, then it was like show up to practice. And that's how I got into bands, you know, playing in mm -hmm. bands. From there, like we was just cool. That was just like France and Mint Condition at the time and all these guys, right? And so that's where technology came into it as well, because everybody in the band played multiple instruments. So I ended up being, you know, a vocalist. I was a bass player, vocalist, guitar player, you know, doing lead vocals on certain songs or whatever. So that's, we would just roam around. And then some guys, I don't know if you remember R Jam Studios in Boston. Yeah, like, yeah I remember R Jam. So I was a, a part of, a lot that. of A lot of like kind of key, key um, recordings came out of R Jam. Like yeah, artists from from like what late eighties, early nineties, right around that era. If I remember yeah, so correctly. a lot of so those those a lot of those guys, the creative guys, end up being like my brothers. I'm still cool with everyone for the most part, right? But you know, business people and people with talent look at things completely different. From, like talent in music, I should say, right? Mm -hmm. So look at things differently. So. But we, you know, technology wise, again, we didn't have, you know, YouTube and the internet the way we do now. So we had to kind of really let's like pick up something or pick up some type of technology in a studio, figure it out, you know, call each other on the phone, trying to figure out how to work digital workstations and all this stuff, DAWs as they call it, going from digital technology, actually analog. The first songs I used to create was just with a four track, just playing a bass line all the way through, playing keyboard parts all the way through that kind of thing. And then once MIDI came and digital technology kind of coming up with that, you know, I always found felt secure with the foundation of how it how it really gets done, like the, the work that really goes into writing a song. Um, that's good. It can be good and bad in some cases, you know, but having a network of people again is what I share with students, you know, having that network of other musicians and creative people, it just really broad, broadens your ability to learn. It accelerates your ability to learn. Um, and share and collaborate and those kind of things. So that's what we did, like our jam that was, you know, Tam Tam was an artist that, that we worked on mm -hmm. back in the day. Um, I remember Do It, Tam Tam, Do It. Yes, I remember yeah, that yeah. song. DJ Reese Cuts, if you know DJ Reese yeah. Cuts is my cousin. He was a part of that, you know, um, Ralph Stacy, who actually passed away unfortunately with COVID, but he came out of that. It's songs like In My Bed, you know, Drew Hill and mm -hmm. a bunch of Casey. Jojo, Babyface, like a bunch of bunch of things that we did then. I was fortunate to kind of be around there on the technical level, um, back and forth in Atlanta, like Bobby Studios that he had down there. I ended up servicing them, like hooking them up with computers, right? Nobody was into computer technology. I learned a lot of that stuff from guys here in Boston and, you know, sent computers down there and went down there and have to rig them up in the studio. So I kind of did that back in studio production stuff as well. And then we we're around like, you know, like Babyface and Keith Sweat and TLC and a lot of these groups coming in and out, crisscross, all these old school groups. So being around that environment was very interesting, but it also taught me that what we learned on the production level, a lot of people weren't interested in learning. Um, and that's just because people can come in, they get their fame, claim the fame from being in the circle, but the education behind that wasn't existing. And that's how I got into like, 
you know, publishing and learning things on that level, um, ownership of songs, copyright law, all these things I got into from that experience, being away and also seeing people lose things as well, seeing people take advantage, being taken advantage of, being a street person, you know, um, which people don't normally look at me and think that I have the background that I have, but it allows me to kind of think past a piece of paper, think past this computer screen, right, into you know, in, in the hustle behind what we do and what we've had to do growing up, right? I kind of left out a lot of that stuff. Um, a lot of my friends aren't here anymore because of crazy stuff that we've gotten into or that we got into. And I'm lucky that's why, why being going to Boston Tech, I wonder where, where I'd be or even if I'd be here anymore, you know, based off of the environment, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so again, that's where the arts and music came in, came into it. Um, I just kind of took it upon myself, especially being black, like, you know, this one attorney that I work with, um, I remember before she would even represent me, she was like, you got to read this book, right? And so I end up literally having to kind of read this book. It's, you know, everything you, you, know, you need to know about the music business. I still use that book. I think it's in its 10th edition right now. Is it Donald Fogel? Uh, Donald Passman. Passman, sorry. Passman, it was Donald yeah. something. Yes, yeah, I read that so. book as well. And I feel like every artist that's in the music industry should read that just to have a base understanding of how the money gets made in the thing that you're about to do. Like there's artists yeah. who are signing record deals who literally don't know how the industry, how it works. Like they don't understand yeah. where the money gets generated. They just think they, you know, I'm going to go rap and somebody's going to hand me a big bag of cash. Yeah. So, you know, the two things that in our community, kind of going back to things that we've kind of touched on before, you know, the education behind what we're doing is already one thing right where there's resources out there there's other people in the industry that we could kind of engage in dialogue to kind of talk about different things business-wise right mm -hmm. um and then we have our community outreach and our social relationships towards each other and what i saw around the time that you and i met you know the mic and different things that was going on you know at that time you know even with the boston music awards you know i got i was the first black person on the board of the Boston Music Awards. And somebody just recently told me like, you got to start talking about this more, right? Because I end up being the first black, a lot of stuff in Boston so far, right? So the first black person on the music awards wasn't anybody calling me and say, hey, you want to come and do this with us. It was me opposing things that I saw being at the music awards, being treated disrespectfully, and then saying something out loud about it, right? Getting written up in the Boston Globe and the owner of the music awards, you know, being disgruntled and hitting me up and, you know, I, he, he's sending me emails telling me that, if I, you know, there's no shortage of people complaining and, you know, come volunteer and me saying, you know something, you get Aerosmith and Extreme and these guys in the soup line and I'll get in the soup line. I don't think you know who you're talking to right now. Like, but in a, in a, in a respectful manner in words, right, Articulate, being able to articulate that in an email, right? And I remember what I do before I would reply, I would CC my attorney because where I was coming from is like, listen, I'm open to talk about this. This is where I come from. This is what I've done, right? And I remember when it got written up in the Globe, the editor that called me to, you know, to what happened was he, um, I replied to something in the Boston Globe based off of my experience with the Music Awards. Hmm. And the editor called me up like on Monday morning, hey, you know, can we run your email? And what I said in my email is, because the Boston Awards, you know, where was Dre Rob? Like, where was like these, uh, you know, Smokes and the Team 220s and different people, right? Where was all y'all at the Music Awards, mm -hmm. right? 
it was non-existent. So when I was at the music awards with Bobby one year, people were saying that he was doing drugs and all this crazy stuff. He did a flip, messed up his ankle. I is me looking for Motrin, right? So it was a, a direct lie based off of something that I knew was false. And mm -hmm. so that's why I emailed the editor because the editor was asking, what is this all about? How come they're not reaching out to the community? And I said, yeah, I'd like to think it's racism, but I know too many white rappers, right? Because mm -hmm. it was our community not being represented. And, and so that ended up, again, getting in the, <laughs> from the globe, me getting the call and me saying, listen, I'm happy to you know, talk to you. The person, the owner of the award show was mad. You know, he was upset about it, but he emailed me and he was, I was in LA at the time. Um, he was like, when you come back home, let's sit down and talk. And that's how I ended up getting on, on the music awards because again, bringing attention to a problem, but also having a solution because I was like, I know where all these people are. You know, like you guys, you're not going to ILD. You're just going to AAF. Yeah, and that was, and that and during that era, that's you know, I mean, the, the awards have since been sold, and there's a new owner and all that stuff now. But during that era, we were still having a very segregated experience musically. You know, what I mean, there were places there, there were clubs and play or or stages that artists like you know, like the Dre Robs, like the, those cats weren't playing. Right. You know, what I mean, and and. So it was part of it was, I think part of it was um, just people weren't intersecting enough. Mm -hmm. Like I think our era of folks is the beginning of people saying, okay, what's going on over there? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm yeah. Gonna, and, it, and, and it's also, and it's very much people like you who were making a, a concerted effort to go wherever you cho chose to, where some people were like, okay, I'm just going to hang in these five spots and they went in these same five spots for their entire life. You were like, oh, there's something interesting going on over there. You like, it, it, I always say it takes a couple of trailblazers to not see the boundaries and just pop up, you know, and those, and that's how the relationships get built from being in presence with, in connection with one another. Yeah, I mean, so one of the telltale things for me at that time was there were black people in the hip hop, right, genre, that were getting awards every year, right? If you date back into like, you know, five, six, seven, eight, um, they were getting, you know, they're from Cambridge area, right? And there's a lot of politics that happens in anything, right? But it's more so awareness versus somebody not wanting you to get an award. If they didn't, if they know about you, all of a sudden they have to consider you. But mm -hmm. a lot of people are okay with you not being known, right? And I yeah. always have a problem with that because as I got into that, industry the award so i remember walking in and seeing posters of certain hip-hop folks that i knew from cambridge in the office hanging up right for the dude that owned the award show and i'm like oh well that's why he's not saying nothing right because he's he's king right i always look at this power in numbers regardless right my whole thing as i always said i want to work with everybody in this town because you can't tell me i suck you shouldn't be working with me mm -hmm. you don't work with me Right, because I'm generally providing resources for other people. So, and I look at that and really say that not to call people out for their level of talent, but just our awareness and our openness to respect each other for what each other does, right? Whether you're older or younger, we all have us older guys, we have some experience to pass down, right? The younger folks, a lot of times have their experience and their energy that comes to us, their vibe and their energy on that level. Mm -hmm. So there's always reasons for us to get into the room and have fun at the cookout, right? Not everybody's gonna be experienced. And that has to typically to do with the business of the arts 
you know, in the arts and culture sector, right? Yeah. But when we're talking about just a bunch of us being a lot younger and knowing, and the thing about it is, I, when I would look at it, I'm like, off season when there's no music awards, cats all hanging out with each other, right? Middle East, mm-hmm. different places, wasn't a lot of places. And I saw that and I was like, well, that's kind of whack. That's kind of whack that I know that I can actually just pick up the phone, you know, send an email or on social media, whatever, be like, yo, you know, Greg, I still do that to this day, no matter where I go. If there's anything relevant, that's why I like learning about people's businesses and their careers, because I'm playing chess everywhere I go. Right. And I'm just moving pieces around, because if you do something, if you excel at something that I don't, I want to be able to a give you a good referral. Right. That's why I like to be on like, hey, man, let's let's talk. Let's sit down. Let's get some food. Let me learn more about you. Right. So at least I can say, yep, I know this person. I know what they're about. So if I'm out there doing what I'm doing because I'm talking to so many different people, I can actually say, oh, yeah, no, great ball. Like when I found out you were in Embrace, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not for nothing, but you were the credibility of Embrace to me, right? Thank you. And can I say it out loud? I'll please, say it. And please send that to, to all the higher ups. And we're going we're gonna to make sure. Hey, we, listen. That, that, might, that might be the clip for this episode. <laughs> listen, I keep it real. I'm glad. And I'm glad I I saw you when I did. Your name was floating around, right? I didn't know what Embrace was. When I saw you guys, you and Amari in the restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. That's why you asking me for whatever. I'm like, bro, whatever. I didn't need to be like, Greg, you got to do this. You got to give me this. You got to give me that, right? You know that. And that's that's the history of it. And we didn't have to talk about it, right? And literally, I just said, this is something Greg asked of me. I'm going to catch up with Greg. You and I really technically have been trying to catch up for a long time. Yes. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, happy that, I'm happy that we found. Yeah. So we, found, we found, finally found the time to do that. Yeah. I was happy to just be like, yeah, you know something, man? Because some people would have said, like, oh, yeah, I can get that for you, Greg. Let's talk about it. Right. Yeah. Now, on the business side, I think you would have respected that as well. But it's not the same as me thinking, yep, that's Greg. He's cool. We got to spend more time together. Whatever mm-hmm. you need, bro, we'll figure it out. But this is what you need right now. Right. And I could do it for you. So and as a bonus, I got to meet Amari at that same city. Mm-hmm. Right. I got to kind of at least have like that one personal FaceTime with him. And then as I saw him around, I'm, you know, just a really, really good guy. Amari's like way nicer than I could ever be. <laughs> <laughs> Not for nothing. Right. But understanding. So that's what makes me tick. Right. And that's what makes me relax and say, yeah, you know something? I can really appreciate those brothers. Right both of y'all so and i don't have a problem saying that out loud because that doesn't diminish me at all as a man that doesn't diminish my career and my business no that enhances me right to be able to go and be like no nah, this is this is this is my people and i like to do that as much as i can right it's not getting into somebody's business i'm not in your home i'm not dictating what's going on with your life i can just support you from afar and that's what we need to do support each other as much as we can Right now, and this is because we're older and experienced, and it's very easy to figure out who's suspect and who's not in this town. Mm-hmm. Right? Super, super easy. I think all of us really put in a lot of work to do that. Right? And so, me in the music lane, I find that I'm the only person in this music lane, again, from Boston Music Awards, from Grammy. I was the first Black person to establish a committee here in Boston for Grammy. Audio Engineering Society, as you, I think you might, you, you know, I just got elected co-chair of the Audio Engineering Society, which is a major organization in audio, the only audio organization in the world, right? So, you know, the Black people that I know that are involved are really just, I can count them on my hand, right? So me actually standing up, because I wasn't going to do it, 
really. But I realized and said, you know, something, who else is going to do it? And this could be great leverage for resources coming into our community and the awareness of who needs to know about these resources. So I'll go ahead and do it. But the reality is we just don't, in the arts and culture of music and film industry here in Boston, there aren't any people of color in these positions at all, right? So I'm kind of more so staying in my music lane and everything mm -hmm. else, right? But you can't do films without music. And that's the education that even from the state level down, they are unaware of, right? They don't really understand how films are made. They don't understand the education behind that coming up in all these different jobs that, you know, are, are in the industry. You know, there's just so many of, of different jobs that you could have because there's nobody there. Films are coming in, the film office is up there doing what it's doing. The production coalition, not a lot of people that look like us at the end of the day, right? They're not coming back into Roxbury talking about, hey, Boys and Girls Club, you know, let's get a little forum going on here. You know, mm -hmm. who's out here in these community development centers that we need to talk to that are dealing with people in the, in the community that need jobs and education and trades and all these other things. It's easy for me to do it because I come from this. Why they don't do it, quote unquote, they, I don't know. But you know something, it's not a concern. And the people that honestly, that I know my allies, my true allies, right? And I kind of make a big deal of this because just because you're white and you might be lefty liberal and voted for Biden or whatever it is, doesn't mean you're my ally. You know what I mean? You gotta be like truly my friend coming to the table with some resource and some concern and really proactively making things happen for me to even consider you an ally, right? And so that's the other Jedi mind trick where they end up getting people like even somebody that looks like us in the community that they hire to be in this position, pay them a good salary. And they, those people, even those black people or people of color never come into the community, right? There's a lot of these people around like that right now. So in the music and film industry, again, I challenge anyone like where's, who's doing the work? Who's really out there doing the work, right? And it seems like really just us, our little collective, like, you know, the people that we know in our, <laughs> you know, like almost in, in our era of us coming up are the people that have been out there really doing the work, you know, and nobody's trying to really create that connectedness with us being so fragmented in the first place. Right. But again, we've been doing with secret society. We've been actually making a lot of strides with it, with education, trying to build those, those bridges, you know, we're open to speak to anyone, you know, we just, even when it comes to talent. And I said this before, for all the successful people that have come up through Boston, there hasn't been one person to do anything for anyone else in the community. So I say it out loud because I'm waiting for somebody to tell me that I'm wrong, you know, because I came up with a lot of these guys from Mari Star all the way back coming up. And so the reality is, you know, who's going to come in, wake up one morning and be like, yeah, let's go into Roxbury and let's go and figure out how to, you know, let's go and talk to the mayor. Let's go talk to you know, the governor and try to figure out these things, right? And it just hasn't happened. We're talking like 40 years, I guess, right? So 40 what years. Do you, what, do you, what do you think is the, and sorry to cut you off, but, but that just makes me jump to a question. So what do you think is the thing that we need for the creative, to build the creative economy and to build creatives? Because I feel like the creative economy is a, a place that quite honestly, if we poured into it, it would, the results, that would come back to us are, are, you know, tenfold, you know what I mean? Because the create creativity is a 
part of everything. You need music when you go to a restaurant. You know what I mean? You know, you need you need that when you're out there. You need somebody that's going to come into the bar, a reason for people to come into the bar other than the alcohol. You need, you know what yeah. I mean? So you need a DJ, you need a band. So what is it that we can do to spur that growth for the creative economy as a whole and but particularly for um black audience uh for for um black folks? Yeah, again, you know what SSBC is doing with creating awareness, right? Mm -hmm. Identifying who who's in our community, who's interested, um, identifying who's also doing similar work or work like so we're not recreating the wheel, but also um, understanding, like understanding the challenges of of us not being aware, right? And then putting in the educational pieces in place from filmmaking. Um, to on the music side, film, music creation, right? Understanding what you're creating, the intellectual property behind that, right? So creating things that are licensable or, or you know, sellable, right? And then also trying to figure out who's your customer, right? So, and the big piece on that is the infrastructure of entrepreneurship, right? Have an entrepreneurship to be able to build the infrastructure because again, with money coming in and out, of, of the state or money coming in with grants and all these things that are there, the equity piece isn't is missing because there's no foundation to build that equity, right? So it's the same as a house, you know, you if it's one a single family or a three family, right? The higher you go up, the more income you're gonna end up having, right? But if you don't understand what it takes to actually acquire that piece of land to 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 be able to, you know, have raised money. Mm -hmm. It's like they build a house, raise money to go in and build the structure, right? And then the business behind how do you get those tenants in there, right? Mm -hmm. Or are you creating something just to sell and make a profit off of, right? I like music because music isn't tangible, right? So like you can take one song, if I own that song as a 100% writer, or if I collaborated, collaborated with you, I can say, hey, Greg, we got this song. Can we go and do this other derivative copyright, right? So if we can't actually exploit it ourselves and put it out there, right, where we're earning income and put it on another TV show and another record and another movie and all these things, which is the beauty of, of a copyright and, and songwriting, right? If we say, hey, you know something? There's another person, you know, that we can actually go get with, but they actually control this other network over here let's figure out a way to collaborate with them. So now we have a copyright that we can actually split up if we're going to split it on the publishing side, or maybe somebody says, you know, I want a piece of the actual song, a piece of the copyright. Because of the business behind that, we can actually say, okay, cool, we'll do this derivative copyright. And then now we put this thing on there, we still own our original copyright, you go ahead and rename it something else and go out there and exploit. And you can do that over and over and over and over if you're the original copyright owner, right? Which is what I've done with my music. Right. So, you know, if somebody doesn't have money, if they want studio, you know, and they can go in, you can actually give somebody a piece of your song, you know, to go and create. A, it's a gamble, but it's still a collaborative way to work. Right. And so with education, a lot of this is what I've heard from people in the community, like, no, nah, no, nah, nobody's getting my publishing. Nobody's getting this and that because of what they're hearing on TV. They don't really understand that if you understand what this is, right? It's this intangible song that is end up being this intellectual property. If you know what you can create with this business and do with this piece of work, right? It's end up in the copyright offices, it's called a, a work. You know, if you know yeah. what to create with that work, you know that you can relax and you can say, well, Greg's not gonna steal my music. You know why? Because I already know my music's protected and I can actually go to Greg and say, hey, Greg, why don't we do it this way? 
right? If you want to make money too, and I want to make money, and matter of fact, you can end up being my agent and keep flipping it, flip it, flip it, right? That's really what we come up with from a street level, right? And how we come up needing to live, regardless of what that is, people to do and need to live. Take that knowledge and apply that into a business sense, in a legal business sense then you'll be the same person doing it. And so that's what we're looking at. Like I've had people that I've wrote with, you know, people that were in bad situations that didn't want to tell me their real name. Like I had to actually, you know, I'm texting like, all right, I'm, I, as, a, as a music supervisor, if I'm doing a cue sheet or something for a film. And because, you know, we all have all kinds of cool relationships with people that we meet, we use rapper names, pseudonames and all these other things, mm -hmm. right? And you don't really think about what's this person's real name? Right. Not until the business comes up and people not wanting to give me their name. And I literally had to be like, yo, um, I need your government name <laughs> just to say government to somebody is already going down a certain path. Like, hey, hey, hey what you, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you all that for? Like, but me, but I, I bet you the way that you got the, I bet you the way you got it was like, this is how I can make sure you get paid. Bro, I'm their attorney at this point. Right. And so and this is where knowledge comes into where I can actually say, because I'm a street dude, it's the same equivalent as putting your electric, your cell phone in, in your kid's name. Right. Mm -hmm. People do that all the time. People do that in the music business all the time. You do a, a deal with Sony, Universal, whatever. You don't fulfill your your requirements. Right. For for that deal in order to get out of that deal. Well, you got to live your work. You're going to put, put the, the music in your mama's name. Right. You're going to mm -hmm. put it in your, your kid's name. It happens all the time. Right. That's not my business, how people do that work. But because I understand that from a street level, I don't have to be condescending when I'm talking to someone. I can say, hey, 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 you know, you got to tell me the real deal. Come on, let's get together. You know, mm -hmm. no wiretapping going on. You're like, let's get together. Let's talk about this. Let me figure out what's going on. Because I want you to win. Like, I want you to actually legally be able to do this type of work. But I need to know where you are. Sometimes it's just paranoia, right? Because we're yeah. doing or la a lack of knowledge, lack of knowledge and paranoia. So if I can dissect that and say like, oh, you know something, this is where you need to structure things, right? And this is if this is your name. Again, once you're a part of a, of a uh, performing rights organization, nobody knows any of your backstory, right? If you look at Malik Williams online, you're going to find a bunch of them, you know, that's that shows up um, in there as as writers, right? You know, that's why I use my middle name, <laughs> Mason. But but those kind of things happen to me where it's like, okay, well, I mean, I've had the checks go to somebody else named me or whatever. So this kind of paranoia. So how do you get around these things, right? On the back end, you just make sure that you're linked to whatever information somebody needs and that ends up on a cue sheet. And then that's no big deal. If, if you've a fear in fear of something legally with your own name, personally, we got to talk about that and figure out what it is. I can't work with it unless I know, but that's the trust that I try to build with people as a mentor. Right. And if I'm dealing with people, you know, black people from my community, I don't mind taking time out. You know, I've gone online and signed people up to BMI or whatever it is to kind of walk through that paperwork, because if you're ignorant, especially as somebody I really, you know, believe in and I want to work with them or whatever, it, it took me a long time to figure this stuff out back in the day. Right. So it takes me, you know, a little bit to kind of lead that person to that resource and say go ahead and do it or even just go on and kind of walk them through it that means every song that we write from that point on we never have to deal with that we're legal and guess what you're not getting me in trouble i've had that happen with you know tv shows and people that i trusted around i'm like oh Yo, you good with cue sheets and everything else and they lied and say yeah 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 i found out they lied because they wasn't good and all of a sudden attorneys are involved and crazy stuff and i'm like yo i told you i would help you with that 
right? But because they were trying to be cocky and everything mm -hmm. and, and act like they knew, they got me in trouble. So I'm really in a, you know, again, the collaborative process is not a business process. The collaborative process is us in the room vibing off of something in the moment, right? The business process is before we leave that room, we better be doing some split sheets. We better be, we better know who's registered where mm -hmm. and make sure. And I've had that happen even with split sheets where, you know, uh, rest in peace, Rich Cronin, that was with LFO. We were doing some music for um, some American Idol kids in his studio. And literally before we left, I think it was like three or four in the morning or something. They were like, oh, we got to do split sheets. And I knew about this as well. I was tired as anything. You got to get it done. What happens? Rich passes away, right? Mm. That's like the worst thing you can think of could happen. But that happened to me. You know, I've had another this song in, on Sony um, that this girl, Charlotte Church, um, that I did some stuff for, and my name ended up not being on the record, right? Luckily, I had split sheets, you know, and we send them around FedEx, everything, original signatures and all that stuff. And so that ended up being something where, you know, my name ended up, you know, Sony has to backtrack, but I could call ASCAP and say, you know, ASCAP shut it down. I didn't get paid. You know, mm -hmm. and the way I found out about it is I Googled the project <laughs> and the project was platinum. And I'm like, yo, how come I don't know about this? This is in the UK. Like, what's going on? I'm in Boston. And that's that's what happened because I was getting checks, though, to be honest with you. I'm like, I don't know mm -hmm. where this is coming from. I ain't gonna say nothing, but I know I did some work, but things happen. Like you write a song today. And you're and doing like, so six, much. So that's what I mean. It could be six months from now and all of a sudden, you know, and I ended up finding out that way. And then, you know, understanding like, whoa, this is a huge achievement, but my name's not on it. That's why, you know, now if you Google it, you'll see my name and, you know, comes up online and Wikipedia or whatever, but it didn't get printed on the record. So that was, again, maybe a mishap or maybe something, but I was able to, to, you know, straighten that out based off of my documents that I had. So that's where all of this business behind it, you know, um, really, really matters. And that's the reason why I talk about it. You know, I'm just as creative, like, you know, I'm, I'm strange because when you're dealing with business, again, it's one side of the brain or the other side of the brain. Um, dealing with film, I kind of like I'm cognizant of kind of both. As an engineer, I'm cognizant of, of both things kind of going on. But um, in a creative room, I don't like to really think about that. We just want to hang out and have fun and, and create and all that stuff. I just try to make it like a big part of my conversation because nobody else is talking about it. That's really the big deal. I don't really know a lot of people here talking about it, don't know any other black folks talking about it. There's no organizations that are set up here. If you're not with ASCAP or BMI or, or even you're not gonna get in Grammy unless you're in one of those already. Anyways, you know, Audio Engineering Society doesn't really touch on this. It's things that I'm gonna start bringing up because there are audio engineers everywhere and it's not just behind a board, you know. Um, there's, there's all different aspects of audio engineering that people in our community aren't, aren't aware of. We wouldn't be doing this right now without audio engineering. When you get in your car and you get bells going off and crazy stuff, you get into, you know, any type of shop or, you know, audio restoration is another big aspect of audio engineering when it comes to filmmaking, stuff like that, um, in content creation. But like, literally, if you walk around, like everything you hear <laughs> everywhere, you know, is is all audio and there's all these jobs there and people in our community could be taken advantage of um and it gets really really deep you know so some of the same tools we use for music are the same things they're using to build cars and most people don't really you know understand that but again that's why i kind of show up i go to conferences this is the reason why i'm doing this chair this co-chair position 
you know, um, so I can bring that, I can purposely and intentionally bring those resources to our community, you know, and from a state level, one of the conversations that I'm having is like, you know, I need to be in that lane, you know, like I have it, the hardest thing is, is talking about what we could be doing to build the creative economy when people don't really know how that works. And mm -hmm. I find that, and the people that do know how it works aren't including us in that. Yeah, I mean, listen, this is incredible, and, and you've you've opened, and I and I hope the audience is as feels the same way that you've opened my my mind up to so much in terms of what we can be doing to grow that creative economy and leaning into that because I feel like you know Boston is known um, for our education, we're known for our strides in health, but the reality also is that we're also a meter, uh, we're a big. Um, person or a big group that pushes the meter in terms of pop culture and in terms of culture as a whole whether it's the filmmakers that have come out of here whether it's the the musical artists that have come out of here and the um the producers that have come out of the city and we gotta we have to make a make sure we make a way for those that are coming behind us and those folks so they have an opportunity to fully engage and get the most out of their creativity and then for us who are not and who may not necessarily be the creative, you also want a world where those create creative things are going on as well. Like, you know, that's what makes a city alive to me. You know, the ability yeah. on a on a Tuesday night, listen, I want to go out and listen to fill in the blank type music. And there's two or three spots to go to. And all those musicians are there and they're all being paid. Like, you know, you go to a city like Nashville, mm -hmm. you don't have to be a megastar to be able to afford your mortgage in Nashville. Right. You know what I mean, right. you could be a gigging musician and do yeah. the things that you're talking about and still be able to, to you know, pay, pay the rent. And I think yeah. that that's not something that's outside of the realm of possibility for us here in the Boston area. So I want to thank you so much for, uh, for the opportunity to talk to you today, man. And it's been a long time coming. And now, now you were looking for me we finally got the opportunity to connect. Now you're going to get sick of me. We're going to be together all the time. No, this is cool. And, you know, just to give you one small example of something that would change the creative Please. economy is, you know, a lot of us are creating musical content in any genre you think about, right? Mm -hmm. From our community. There's a lot of folks out there making films now. There's more and more of us with cameras and doing like embrace documentary and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. And we talked about the music behind that. The music has to be licensed from somewhere, right? Sometimes archival content has to be licensed from somewhere. There's a lot of people, you know, that have content right now, right? That could license their content. So the education behind, hey, my grandmother has all this footage of, I mean, this is Boston, right? With Malcolm X and Farrakhan and, you know, some of the things like there's another new movie I'll share with you later that we're working on where this has become relevant and very important. Muhammad Ali and a lot of people that that hung around our community, you know, outside of all the other artists that, you know, were here back in the day. So if you had this content, this footage, or if you have that song that you created, if you actually own that song, the copyright to that song, even if in a collaborative manner, you can actually go out and now film and music people could collaborate more right on that film or you know photographer videographer with any kind of content you can actually go out and license that for a film so that's already one revenue stream you know that's that's a few different revenue streams that are there what happens right the detrimental aspect of not doing that in any filmmakers out there doing festivals and stuff like that might know if you have your film project 
and you go ahead complete the film master it you pay for all that stuff you get into film festivals you're super excited it's not until you get a distribution deal when they look for those deliverables of cue sheets and licenses and everything else that's the showstopper right there that's how i got into doing music because somebody says oh i got this usher song or this john legend song i gotta replace it right now they gotta find a real musician to go and mm -hmm. replace that and so to that's make where, something at that higher quality, a le level of quality too. Right, exactly. So we call it R&D, rip off and duplicate, right? You, you create something. <laughs> no, this is true. I remember like going back and forth to LA and, and we would talk about this because we were real musicians, right? So you can go in, I can play a guitar or bass or whatever, genres, tempos, all these things. You can't just do that when you're operating with just with loops, right? And, and guessing, right? You can still be creative, but you can't work the spec. So working the spec as a musician allowed me to actually do those soap operas back in the day because it was typical. Yeah, we want Usher, especially way back then. You know, we want 50 Cent, Scary Movie 3, if you can see that poster back there. Right. Like that's why you get a call and be like, yo, I need a rapper to do this. And so because of that and because of understanding, I was like, OK, cool. Nowadays, especially as an educator, I'm like, that's what's detrimental. Now you get this distribution on a deal. You don't have those clearances. And now what happens now? You don't have the money because everybody's struggling to try to put films together in the first place. That could kill your whole project. But if you know that you have to have these things up front, right? And I talk to, I do these talks at colleges all over the place. And I'm amazed that professors in the room are like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yo, this is your class. This is your, this is your film and music class. You mean it? But experience is a big, big deal. So experience puts up those red flags. And so that's what I do because I come from where, from this community. And we're always trying to just make things happen out of nothing, right? Mm -hmm. And so we still feel good. When we did Scary Movie, just fun fact, right? So um, I think it was Fat Joe had licensed a song to the music supervisor in LA. I think he charged 50 grand or something like that. Come to find out that he didn't own the publishing to that song, right? Mm -hmm. It almost happened with me with Curtis Blow in New York, this other thing that we were working on where people are like, you go to the artist, people think, let me get to that artist and I can go in and buy from that artist. But if they don't really understand that there's a publisher involved, right, who is the admin to really sign off on that deal, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, like Scary Movie, they lost 50 grand just then, right? And all of a sudden we're creating more music <laughs> because, you know, it becomes a legal issue at that point. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that's just some things that I've experienced and things that I've, I've gone through and the importance of it, like, even if it's the smallest thing, if you collaborate with people, then you can actually work out these things. If you have no money to be able to use, get a, a license use of, of their work, and then you're good at that point, right? Especially if we're doing it community-wise, kids coming up in schools and film programs, you know, boys and girls clubs do this kind of stuff and just be cognizant of making sure you can dot those I's and cross those T's and you're good. So anyways, just, just to kind of share that, because that's a typical thing that happens a lot and people don't find out until they're until they have an opportunity to, to sell it. Well, know? listen, before we get out of here, let people know where they can learn more about you and more about the Secret Society of Black Creatives. No, absolutely. On, on social media, you know, MalikWilliams.com, you can type that in on Inst Instagram, Malik Mason Williams. Um, my company is Real Sync Music, R-E-E-L-S-Y-N-C-M-U-S-I-C. Um, and the Secret Society of Black Creatives, our website is SS Black Creatives. Um, and also on Instagram, Secret Society of Black Creatives. So uh, 
Absolutely. I appreciate having this conversation. Uh, it's been, it's been, like I said, it's a long time coming, but now we're yeah. figuring out all types of good trouble to get into, my friend. And 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 I'm I'm so happy that I had the opportunity to talk to you today, man. So thank you very thank you. much. I appreciate you. Appreciate appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us. And folks, we will be back very soon with another episode of Good Trouble. And until then, take care of yourselves. <laughs>